Section 12 of The Romance of the Romanovs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 9 Romance upon Romance. Peter the Second was a fine, handsome lad of eleven summers, the fruit of the unhappy union of the miserable Alexis and hardly less miserable Charlotte of Wolfenbüttel. From such a stock Peter the Great had expected no good. He disliked to think of the boy, and, careful as he generally was about education, he allowed the child to pass to the hands of ignorant and incompetent trainers. Catherine or Menshikov, who may have early conceived his plan of the future, altered this state of things at the death of Peter the Great. The conscientious German minister Ostermann was charged with the education of the young prince, and we perceive by his scheme of lessons which survives that he was prepared even for the duties of a monarch. Unhappily, the best scheme of education depends for its result upon the cooperation of the pupil, and Peter was a bad pupil. He liked Osterman, but he disliked lessons, and the consciousness that he was now a monarch did not dispose his lively imagination to submit to prosy toil. There was a strain of nervous instability in nearly the whole of the Romanovs at this stage. Peter liked sport and riding and play. His sister Natalia, two years older than he, was a good playmate. Even better was Aunt Elizabeth, the younger daughter of the late Empress. Elizabeth was now a very sprightly and pretty young lady of sixteen, the exact opposite of what a Russian princess ought to be on the old standards. She shunned books, but took like a boy to riding and hunting and fencing. Her lively tongue and merry blue eyes attracted young officers, and she was the daughter of Catherine and Peter in such matters. Menshikov did not like the intimacy, and he carried Peter off to one of his palaces and put trusted servants and the sober Ostermen about him. He also introduced the young Tsar to the charm of his own domestic circle, and he presently announced to the Privy Council that Peter had honoured him by asking the hand of his daughter Maria. The ceremony of betrothal was, in fact, publicly celebrated. Inconvenient or critical people were humanely removed by appointments abroad. Even the Duke of Holstein was induced to return to his native land and take his duchess with him, and they were treated very generously in the matter of provision. Honors and offices were distributed with such generosity as was consistent with the supreme power and increasing wealth of the former premier. Members of old noble families, like the Dolgorukis and Golitsuins, were promoted. With the aid of Osterman for foreign affairs, Menshikov ruled the country advantageously. There was, fortunately, no stress at home or abroad, for he had no ability as a statesman, but he passed a number of measures which promoted trade or tranquillity. The Cossacks were more than pacified by the concessions he made to them. 
eudoxia was liberated from the rigorous and dismal confinement to which peter the great had condemned her which greatly pleased the orthodox the tariff was lowered the ghastly poles and spikes on which it had been customary to fix the heads or limbs of criminals were abolished but in the world which the Romanovs had created, or suffered to develop, the supreme concern was the fortune of the individual. I do not mean, of course, that this selfishness was unknown at the court of Louis the Fifteenth or of George I, but the sequel will show how far Russia lagged behind even the primitive morality of those elegant courts. There were few who did not look with green eyes upon the princely fortune of the adventurer, and there were some who felt it an outrage upon the nobility. Russia was prosperous, but could a land prosper indefinitely when the national genius was mocked by foreign innovations and the sacred traditions of Moscow were scouted? The nobles gave an idealist complexion to their discontent, and whispers reached the ear of the growing prince. Menshikov was imprudent in meeting Peter's first movements of resentment. One day the young Tsar received what appears to have been a personal payment of nine thousand ducats, and he sent it to his sister Natalia. Menshikov met the messenger and took away the money. Peter, he said, did not yet understand the value of money. Peter sent for him and gave him, to his amazement, an imperial scolding. He might have recognized a bit of his old master in the stamping and raging boy, but he did not take the lesson. Soon afterwards, Peter sent to Natalia a fine service of plate, which had been presented to him, and Menshikov tried to make her restore it. The first minister was then compelled to take to his bed for some weeks. When he recovered, he found that Peter had gone to the palace at Peterhof some miles away, and was wildly enjoying himself with Natalia and Aunt Elizabeth. Osterman and the Dalkarukis also were there. Menshikov, as an offset, demanded the accounts of the palace, and discharged a servant for some item he found, and the boy Tsar, in a fiery interview, told him to mind his own business. This was in August. Menshikov, now seriously concerned, thought that the influence of Osterman was mischievous, and he got up a violent quarrel with him, and threatened to send him to Siberia. From a loyal colleague, Osterman became one more enemy of the first minister, and the story of his fall ran rapidly. On September 6th, Menshikov went out to Peterhof to pay respectful homage to the Tsar. Peter not only turned his back upon him, but drew the attention of his smiling courtiers to the fact that he did. The minister prepared a festival, and when the Tsar scouted his invitation, he nervously begged an interview. The answer was a troop of soldiers such as he himself had sent to darken many a home, and he fell to the ground in a swoon. A few days later the fallen man appeared before the privy council and received sentence. He was fined for conspiracy against the throne $375,000, stripped of all his honors and offices, and ordered to retire to the dreary waste of the steppes. But his wife, Daria, 
we remember Peter the Great forcing him to marry that merry lady, appealed passionately against the brutal sentence, and he was suffered to retire instead to a beautiful estate he had in the Ukraine. Few wept when, one morning in September, a long caravan bore Menshikov and his wife and daughter out of the life of Russia. But his enemies were not satisfied. The Dolkorukis, who came to power, trumped up a charge of conspiracy in the following year, and on the miserable word of tortured witnesses, which in Russia was still admitted, banished the broken-hearted adventurer to the frozen shores of the Arctic. There, for two years, until death set him free, and ended one of the great romances of that stirring period, Menshikov supported by the labor of his own hands, his devoted wife, and the unlucky girl who had thought to become an empress. Osterman remained the most important and most useful statesman, but the Galatzuins, Dalkarukis, and other families of the old nobility now came to power, and they made an effort to drag Russia back to the ruts from which Peter the Great had violently shifted it. They were of what came to be called in the nineteenth century the Russophile School, narrow-minded conservatives who railed at all innovation and foreign influence and persuaded themselves that the genius of russia was different from that of other european nations st petersburg was to them the hated symbol of the new order and they induced peter to return to moscow he was crowned there on February 25, 1728, with all the archaic ceremonies of Russian tradition, and they took care to impress him with the contrast between the comparatively bright and healthy air of Moscow and the dank climate of the northern metropolis. This court remained at Moscow, and the departments of state were presently transferred to it. To complete the transformation from the ideals of Peter the Great to those of Alexis, the aged Eudoxia was appointed regent, and a court of the old type gathered about her. Osterman was alarmed, and the reactionaries tried to remove him. Peter, fortunately for Russia, would not hear of the dismissal of his old director, but he allowed the conservative nobles to act much as they pleased, and he was encouraged by them to spend his time in hunting and laborious idleness. The fleet was suffered to rot in harbor, and only the steady effect of such internal reforms as Peter the Great had introduced kept the country in some degree of prosperity the old indolence returned, since there were now no costly schemes to be realized, and the favorable turn of foreign relations brought no war, the taxes were not enforced, and the country enjoyed a fallacious happiness. In December, Natalia died of consumption. Through her, Osterman had at times got a warning word to the ear of his pupil, and the levity of the Tsar now increased. He spent his days with Elizabeth, and the Dalkarukis feared that what Osterman had once recommended, the marriage of the aunt and nephew, would come to pass. As it was their aim, in spite of all the warnings of Russian history, to marry him to a girl of their own family, Elizabeth must go, and the frivolity of that precocious lady gave them ample opportunities. 
She was scarcely out of her teens, yet her amours were notorious, and her lovers were not of noble rank. A word was whispered to Peter, who was a sober and strict-living youth, and Aunt Elizabeth ceased to be his constant companion. Austria, Russia's ally, looked with concern upon this reaction and indolence, and its representatives joined with Osterman in pressing Peter to return to St. Petersburg and attend to his military resources. A tense, if more or less veiled, struggle for the guidance of the Tsar set in. For the moment the ambitious Dolkorukis won. They carried Peter a hundred miles away for a grand and prolonged hunt and series of entertainments. The entire family surrounded him and kept him for weeks in a state of febrile exhilaration. When they returned to Moscow, Alexis Dolkoruki announced that the Tsar was to wed his daughter Catherine, and the ceremony of betrothal was pompously conducted. The Dolkorukis now closed round the youthful Tsar, kept their angry rivals away, and began a premature plunder of the court and treasury, as confidently as if such things had never before left their awful monuments in Russian history. The wedding was fixed for January 30, 1730. Peter would then be only fourteen years old, but the Dolkorukis were anxious. Already the Tsar was peevish and moody, and he gave at times alarmingly sharp replies. One day, as the favoured family gathered round him and amused him with a game of forfeits, it fell to him as a forfeit to kiss his betrothed. To their consternation he walked out of the room. About the middle of the month a worse cloud than ever came over their hour of sunshine. Peter fell ill and it was whispered among the pale-faced family the malady was the dreaded smallpox. Frantic conferences were held, and some of the family, in their sordid greed and selfishness, actually proposed to wed the semi-conscious boy and put the girl abed with him. But Osterman guarded the chamber, and on January 30th, the day appointed for the wedding, Peter II ended his brief reign. The succession to the throne was now so open that Moscow teemed with melodramatic conspiracies. The young bloods of the Dolkoruki party are said to have forged a will in which Peter left the crown to his betrothed, but the older men ridiculed the proposal, and the document does not seem to have been produced. On the other hand, the physician of the Tsarevna Elizabeth, a born conspirator, roused that young lady from her sleep and urged her to seize the throne. Elizabeth fluttered over the romantic proposal, then turned over in bed and deferred it to the morrow. On the morrow it was too late, for the Privy Council had held an all-night sitting and come to a singular decision. Prince Demetrius Galitzuin, one of the older nobles who had never enjoyed what he regarded as his full share of wealth and power, felt that it was his turn to make a monarch and enjoy the reward. He decked his plan with a plausible air of reform. This recent concentration of power in the hands of an autocrat was the root of all evil, since one monarch usually meant one favorite. Let them choose a ruler who would promise in advance, promise on paper, to resign the power to the Privy Council. 
he drew up a scheme in which the future sovereign pledged himself or herself to take no important action to declare war or levy taxes or punish a noble or marry and so on without their consent what candidate would be likely to sign and respect such a promise elizabeth could not be relied upon in fact galitzuin a proud and arrogant noble of the old school detested peter the great and regarded his marriage as void and his daughters as illegitimate but peter's elder brother the weak-minded ivan v had left three daughters and the second of these anne duchess of curland would it was thought agree to almost any conditions if she were offered the crown Anne, who was then thirty-seven years old, had had a dull and vexatious life. Peter had made her and her mother, Prascovia, move to St. Petersburg, and he had compelled Anne, in her eighteenth year, to marry the Duke of Curland for political reasons. The Duke, however, had found Russian hospitality so overpowering that he had died on the way home, and the young princess, childless and isolated, had been compelled to continue the journey and settle at Mittau, the capital of the duchy. To control her purse and administer her affairs, Peter had sent Count Bestuzev, and he laughed heartily when he heard that Anne had made a lover of him. Presently there came along the familiar type of handsome and unscrupulous adventurer, the grandson of a groom of an earlier duke named biren had a sister in a modest office at court she was however also a mistress of the count and she got a place for her brother biren was clever and ambitious and it was not long before he supplanted bestuzev in the affection of the duchess and got him dismissed Buren married after a time, and it is claimed that Anne's very intimate relations to him after his marriage were purely platonic. In any case, he remained master of her court, and he would no doubt be consulted on the strange new problem that confronted her. She had costly tastes and little money, and glittering Moscow suddenly and unexpectedly rose on her horizon. The privy councillors had decided that Anne was the most likely of the surviving Romanovs, Peter was the last male of the family, to accept the crown at a reduced price. They had sent a deputation to Mittau, and a courier presently came back with the news that she had signed the conditions. Yaguzinski, the drunken and turbulent general, who had often given trouble, had tried a little intrigue of his own. He had sent a disguised messenger to Mittau to warn Anne, but his messenger had been caught by Galitzuin's watchful servants on the return journey. A general meeting of the great officials and nobles was called, and the privy councillors announced to them that Anne had accepted and resigned all power to the council. It is quaint to read in letters of the time that the once democratic Russians now trembled with anger at this surrender of the sacred autocracy. The announcement was received in ominous silence. Galitzuin turned fiercely upon Yaguzhinsky and forced him to avow his plot, and the general and his associates were arrested and disgraced. The malcontents were cowed, and Anne came to Moscow. 
there can be very little doubt that anne who was intelligent perfectly understood the situation and was ready on any pretext to disavow her oath although galitzuin set a close guard of servants and soldiers about her she soon learnt that there was a powerful party in opposition to the privy council and she entered into correspondence with it count biron's baby was her godchild and she insisted that it be brought to her chamber every morning to be fondled a baby and nurse could do little harm the sentries thought but there were notes from the conspirators pinned underneath the baby's bib letters were smuggled in presents to the sovereign another of the older nobles prince Cherkaski was aiming at power on the approved lines of russian tradition the invariable ghastly ends of which no one seemed to study and was organizing the conspiracy on the morning of may eighth ten weeks after anne's arrival about eight hundred of the nobles and gentry assembled in the courtyard of the kreml and with a select body of officers of the guard trooped to anne's apartments and asked a hearing the comedy was gravely enacted. Anne, surrounded by her court, graciously received the petitioners, and heard with astonishment that there was dissatisfaction at her surrender of the autocracy. The privy councillors were summoned, and Cherkaski and Dolgoruki fought for the lead. Anne hesitated, but her elder sister, the Duchess of Mecklenburg, turned the scale against the privy council. She would reconsider her act— in the afternoon the parties returned, and Anne turned severely upon the councillors. "'Were not those articles you submitted to me framed with the consent of my subjects?' she asked. "'It was boisterously affirmed by the crowd that they were not.' "'Then you lied,' she said to the great nobles, and the autocracy was restored, and the roll of drums and roar of guns and clangor of bells announced with what joy Moscow took the yoke on its shoulders once more. For a time it seemed as if the new ruler was too humane to exact the usual penalties. The Privy Council was abolished, but the Senate was reorganized, and the Galitzuans and Dalgarukis were, to their surprise, included in the new body. Their wives were welcomed at court, their relatives promoted. But either Anne awaited the advice of Biron, who had remained at Mittau for a time, or she prudently ascertained her strength. In April, a flash of the brutal Romanov temper lit Moscow once more. Alexis Dolgoruki and his family were arrested and convicted of causing the death of the late Tsar. The aged father went to Siberia, the younger men were knouted and exiled, and the young Catherine, the betrothed of Peter II, was, with a refinement of cruelty, sent to the very spot in the frozen north where Menshikov's daughter, the earlier aspirant to the crown, had lamented her bitter disappointment. The great proud family was shattered to atoms and the power that their fellow nobles had snatched from them now passed mainly to foreigners. Buren established himself in the palace, close to Anne's apartments, and became the real autocrat. Anne was too intelligent to part with the old and experienced ministers. Indeed, an inner cabinet consisting of Osterman, Cherkaski, and Golovkin was formed, and the affairs of the state were conscientiously administered. 
but the bulk of the lucrative offices fell to Germans and Kurlanders. Russians grumbled and were snubbed. The fiery Yagozhinsky was dissatisfied with his promotion, and in his cups he spoke freely about the foreigners. One day at table he insulted and drew his sword upon Biron. He was appointed minister at Berlin. Other nobles were punished for criticizing, and Count Biron settled down to his reign. The external fortune of the country may be briefly sketched. In the eternal rise and fall of nations, Poland had now sunk to almost its lowest depth. Sweden was sinking, France was at its zenith, and was in deadly antagonism to Austria. Prussia was watching and preparing astutely, and snatching every advantage it could from the quarrels of its neighbors. The obvious policy of Russia was to remain on good terms with the nearer of the great powers, Austria, and it was just as obviously the policy of France to detach Russia and weaken Austria. The diplomatic battle rose to a furious pitch over the succession to the throne of Poland, which Augustus II would soon quit. He naturally wished to leave the crown to his son, and the French king wished to secure it for his Polish father-in-law, Leszczynski. Both sides offered bribes to Biron, and he looked lovingly at the magnificent French offer of half a million ducats and the Duchy of Courland. But so violent and dangerous a change of Russian policy was not to be contemplated. Augustus died, and the Poles were induced to accept Lazinski. Poland was now the sick man of Europe, as every aspirant to its throne was ready to barter away some portion of its territory to the greedy powers. But Russia would not endure the French candidate, and in the summer of 1733 a Russian army invaded and subdued the Poles. The French retorted, in the manner of the time, by spurring the Swedes and the Turks to draw off the Russians, and a long war, 1736-1739, with Turkey followed. Azov was retaken, and the Russian generals had a hope of annexing the northern coast of the Black Sea. Anne, however, watched the progress of the long and costly operations with feminine emotion, and the withdrawal of Austria from the war gave her and her council an opportunity to end it. It had cost the lives of a hundred thousand men, and had strained the Russian treasury, and all that the grumbling country gained was the city of Azov and a small area of the surrounding region. It should be added, however, that, cumbrous as the Russian army was, its prestige rose in the mind of Europe. Its German commanders and engineers counted for something. To the people at large, when the last fireworks had been discharged, the burden of the war was a new grievance. Anne was not without shrewdness. She contrived to wring from the impoverished people even the arrears of taxes which the frivolity of the late administration had allowed to accumulate, without ever confronting a serious threat to her rule. But her careful and generally intelligent government was guilty of one extravagance which further angered the people. She loved pomp and display 
and she gradually impressed upon her court and aristocracy a standard of living especially of dressing which threatened many with ruin the court returned in seventeen thirty two to st petersburg and buren and she attempted to give it the elegance and splendor of the first courts of europe neither had at first much refinement of taste and foreign visitors described with amused disdain the veneer of display on the lingering barbarism of russia new uniforms of the most gaudy character were supplied to the guard and the servants of the court the nobles were compelled to spend what seemed to russians colossal sums in bringing themselves up to the new standard and a bewigged and bepowdered crowd in dazzling blue or green or pink silks and satins replaced the sober-clad boyars of earlier years banquets and balls followed each other in rapid succession and new dresses must adorn each occasion while it is said that the demand for the services of the elaborate hair-dressers was such that ladies had at times to have their hair dressed two or three days in advance and carefully preserve the structure until the evening of the ball in her later years anne perhaps taught by the pungent criticisms of foreign guests developed a sober taste she was a very tall woman of large and not ungraceful build with grave dark blue eyes and black hair in her later years she exchanged her bright blues and greens for gold brocade or brown silk her diamonds for pearls and her officers had black and yellow liveries embroidered with silver braid she did much to raise the taste of russia although champagne was now introduced into russia she frowned upon the ancient daily habit of intoxication only on one day of the year the anniversary of her coronation did she tolerate heavy drinking she introduced also a certain lightness and elegance into open-air feasts which had in peter's day been orgies of drink and roughness and she insisted on better manners at table it was not long since at a russian dinner one plate had had to serve a guest through the long and varied series of courses the punctilious man wiped his plate with his finger or napkin or poured the gravy on to the floor and a servant had torn scraps of linen or calico off a roll for the use of those who desired napkins into the state of such rooms when the doors were locked for many hours as they often were the polite modern must not inquire too closely a good deal of this grossness lingered in russia and anne set her face against it she the earlier lover of bestyusef and biren was not less warmly opposed to laxity of morals moderate gambling she herself introduced and encouraged but the young folk whom she liked to have about her had to be careful when elizabeth did not reform her free ways after a few lovers had been sent to siberia she was threatened with a convent anne's favorite was a niece princess anne of mecklenburg an insipid good-natured girl whom she was preparing for the throne the saxon envoy count lenar was discovered in too close a relation to this young lady and was sent back to saxony whence we shall find him return as soon as the tsarina is dead and his lover is on the throne 
in other respects the character of anne was at the lowest romanoff level she not only delighted in the dwarfs and buffoons and the rough knockabout comedies which had always been popular at the court but she found pleasure in refinements of cruelty which peter would have thought unchivalrous she would rock with laughter when her dwarfs got to bloody noses in their cockfights, and she sank to the depth of compelling noblemen and women who incurred her anger to enter these vulgar troops and provide the most puerile amusement. A noble of merit was condemned to this disgraceful service because Anne hated his wife, another because he joined the Roman Church but the most curious and brutal of all her whims was her treatment of a noble of the great Galatzuan family. The man had travelled in Italy and married a Roman Catholic. He was forty years old and of high birth, yet he was compelled to enter the company of Anne's pages and buffoons. When his wife at length died, Anne said that she would choose a second for him, and she selected a coarse and ugly Kalmuk woman from the uncivilized fringe of her empire. The wedding must be not merely public, but of a nature to attract the attention of the whole of Russia to his disgrace, and specimens of all the backward peoples of the empire were summoned to it. A long procession of Finns, Laps, Samoyedes, etc., riding in carts drawn by pigs or reindeer, or other unusual animals, preceded the miserable groom and his bride, who rode on an elephant to the church. All St. Petersburg turned out to see it. In the evening a large banquet was served to the guests, and the wedded pair then went to the house which had been made for them. It was the month of February, and a house had been cut out of solid ice. Cannons of ice exploded at the door, all the furniture was of ice, and the unfortunate noble and his hideous companion were enclosed for the night in a room and upon a bed of naked ice. This was in the very year of the Empress's death. Anne was scarcely less to blame for the conduct of her favorite. While Russia groaned under her taxes, his wealth grew to a colossal fortune. His wife's diamonds alone were valued at three million rubles. His stables, his plate, his palaces were amongst the most superb in Europe. This wealth was notoriously amassed by corruption and protected by a system of spies and bullies. In his duchy of Courland, which he obtained in 1737 by bribing the electors, his name spelt terror to the poor folk from whom he had sprung. In Russia itself he ruled by the knout and the executioner. In 1739 he felt that the Dolgorukis were not quite beyond the power of making mischief if the empress died, and he dragged them from their exiles and had a fresh trial. One was broken on the wheel, two were beheaded, and others were imprisoned for life. In the following year he was insulted in the council by a certain Valuinsky, whom he had adopted, but who had turned against him. The man must be broken, or he would himself leave the country, he told the empress. She sadly consented, and the man was taken to a scaffold which bore instruments so horrible that his robust nerve gave way. At the last moment the Empress benevolently commuted his sentence, 
he merely lost his right hand and his head his companions lost their heads or their tongues or joined the melancholy colony in siberia in the summer of seventeen forty the princess anne who had married prince anthony of brunswick bevern bore a son and as anne's health failed the feverish dispute about the succession reopened it was understood that this infant was to be nominated czar and the natural course would be to make his parents the regents Biren, however, took care to have himself nominated for the regency, and he pressed the empress, whose end was in sight, to endorse the arrangement. She refused for some days, but on October 26th she signed the document, and two days later she died. Another and still stranger romance was now to be added to the weird chronicle of the court of the Romanovs anne of mecklenburg was the daughter of the late empress's elder sister who had we saw been a daughter of peter the great's elder brother she seems to have been very unlike the other members of the family though her mother had been a quiet and temperate princess anne herself was a blonde good-natured nonentity a pawn in the game played by her elders prince anthony who had even less intelligence and character than she had been brought young from austria and trained for his marital and royal duties under the eye of the late empress his wife disdained him and biron seeing her dislike before they were married suggested that she should marry instead his fifteen-year-old son this proposal she rejected even more vehemently, and in the summer of 1739 she had coldly given her hand to Anthony. Buren perceived the delicacy of his position, and he tried, by concession to the troops and a reduction of the extravagance which the late empress had imposed, to conciliate the country. But from the first day of his regency a sullen murmur rose about him and gathered volume. Prince Anthony was the first to rebel. It was, he said, infamous to exclude him from the regency when his son was Tsar. But when Biren brought him before an assembly of the nobles, he saw the shadow of the scaffold and broke into hysterical tears. He was relieved of his appointments and ordered to confine himself to his wife's apartments. Anne herself then murmured, and Biren threatened to retain the babe and send her and her husband to Mecklenburg. In the group of dignitaries was a German military engineer, Munich, who had never yet gambled in the intrigue of making a ruler of the Russian Empire, and chance and spite now afforded him an opportunity. On November 19th, a few weeks after the death of the late empress, he had some business at the chamber of the princess Anne, and the young mother tearfully confided to him her humiliations. She and her husband, she sobbed, would take their child and quit Russia forever. Munich was sympathetic, as she may have been forewarned. Buren had not given him the post of commander-in-chief, which he coveted. He told Anne to confide entirely in him, and went off to dine, jovially enough, with Biren. He was back afterwards at Anne's chamber, telling her to be ready for action at three the next morning, and, in order the better to mask his intrigue, he returned to sup and crack a bottle with the regent.
Munich was lieutenant-colonel of the guard, and at two in the morning he told his plan to the awakened officers, and they led a picked body of troops to the summer palace. Bluffing the guards with a statement that he was conducting the Princess Anne to see Buren on some important business, he took his men to the room in which Buren and his wife slept. One glance at the massed uniforms behind the colonel told the amazing adventurer that his hour had come. He fought like a madman, but was overpowered and carried off in a quilt. Before the day broke, his brothers and reliable supporters were under arrest, and St. Petersburg awoke to find that another revolution had been successfully accomplished at the palace. The hated Corlander was stripped of all his possessions, and he took that dreary route to Siberia that had been trodden by thousands of his victims. But this last romance of this particular series had only begun with the pretty adventure of the German engineer. Munich inherited Behren's vanity and corruption, as well as his power and wealth, but not his astuteness. In two months he is said to have heaped up a fortune hardly less than that of Buren, and it was at the grave cost of the state. The war of the Austrian succession had opened, and Frederick of Prussia heavily bribed Munich to put Russia on his side instead of that of Maria Theresa. This was too much for the sagacious Osterman, who secured a redistribution of power and responsibility. His conceited fellow-countrymen, overestimating the stupidity of the regents, tendered his resignation, and it was accepted. Osterman now resumed the control of foreign policy, but such matters concern us little here. It is enough to say that Sweden was spurred by France to a new attack upon Russia, and was defeated. In the meantime, the new romance was rapidly developing in the court a young German woman named Julia Mengden secured not merely the favors but the passionate attachment of the regent Anne, and the court was filled afresh with disgust. Anne, an idle and insipid creature, would spend almost the whole day playing cards with Julia. She was often too lazy or too listless to dress, and courtiers found her scantily draped in Julia's rooms at all hours. Other Mengdens were attracted from the depths of Germany. A new brood of thick-tongued foreigners swarmed about the court. Then Count Linar, the Saxon envoy, whom the late Empress had thought it prudent to remove, returned to St. Petersburg and to the palace. Julia married him, but there seems no room for doubt that she was chiefly concerned to mask her royal friend's liaison with the Count. Anne had a second legitimate child, but within a few weeks Julia was holding her door while Lenar was within. As Anne had no redeeming charm or grace of character, the court looked on with disdain. Lenar, it was feared, would succeed to the place of Munich, Buren, and Menshikov, and few had a word for Anne. To her court she presented always a dull and bored look, and her husband she openly despised. In the circumstances a fresh intrigue was almost inevitable, and the only other surviving Romanov was the Princess Elizabeth. 
there was moreover a french envoy at st petersburg who had the romantic imagination in its liveliest form and who concluded that elizabeth was precisely the ruler who would best suit the interests of his country to obtain power she would, he thought, desert St. Petersburg for Moscow, and surrender the Baltic provinces to the Swedes. He got into touch with Elizabeth, and proposed that she should do this, if he arranged simultaneously a rising in St. Petersburg and an invasion by the Swedes. Elizabeth refused to yield territory, but she continued the negotiations. In December, Anne detected her correspondence and warmly scolded her, but the quarrel ended in embraces. That was on December 4th, and in the early morning of December 6th, as Anne slept with her beloved Julia, a troop of grenadiers, with Princess Elizabeth at their head, entered the room and made an end of the reign of little Ivan VI and the regency of his parents how that was done belongs to the romance of the romantic empress elizabeth end of section twelve